0: Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, why don't you uh, turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. We are going through the book of Ruth one chapter at a time every Sunday, and we are uh, a little over halfway through with it, and this is really the the apex of the book. If you skipped every other Sunday, you're at the right one, Uh, because this is the chapter everyone gets excited about, and there's good reason to get excited about it. Uh, but if you miss the last couple weeks, that's all right. I'm going to catch you up in a, in just a, a few minutes, so that you have kind of a working understanding, and this chapter will, will make sense. Uh, but Ruth chapter three, we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to we're going to start by reading a, a few verses at a time. Going uh, to catch you up a little bit on this story. Uh, we've been going through Ruth, been calling it a story of redemption. And it essentially starts off in a scene that is absolute despair, disharmony, poverty. If you were uh, here, you remember chapter one started off with a scene involving a fairly affluent, com- uh, a fairly affluent family that loses everything over the course of a few years. Lose everything. At the end of chapter 1 and the first five verses, you actually have this scene that ends with Naomi and her two Moabite daughters. You know, they had a family, they married, there was a famine in the land, they leave Bethlehem because of the famine, they go to Moab, uh, and there they find daughters for their sons. Over the course of a few years, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons die, leaving her vulnerable Susceptible to poverty, susceptible to violence, without a single shred of hope, and to make matters worse, away from Bethlehem and in a foreign uh, land. This is how Ruth starts. It's a picture of despair and hopelessness. And yet, we also see, as we go through chapter one and even chapter two, that there are no accidents. Even the worst of the worst, even the worst situations that could come upon us, there are no accidents, and it's often in the mundane. It's often in the worst of the worst that God, even if we don't see him, is working things to his glory and even for our good. And we saw a little bit of that just creeping uh, to the surface, uh, even in the things that we don't understand, even in what we might think of as simple and mundane, even radically awful and horrific. Uh, as I was getting ready for uh, uh, Ruth chapter 3, uh, my wife and I, we, uh, what's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not used to being talked back to. I, I like that. should talk more. I like the engagement. But uh, we had uh, been trying to upgrade to a bigger car to fit some of our two kids. We were driving this Corolla. Uh <laughs> Hey, they take up a lot of space. <laughs> Somehow, even when they're not physically present, they're still taking up space. I don't know how they pull that off. But we had this Corolla, and you know, Brianna got that when she was in college, and then she married me, and then we had two kids, and we are like, we need, a, we need a little more space uh, uh, to fit all of their stuff. And so we were on the hunt for uh, a bigger-sized Honda, and we have been looking uh, for this car, this particular car that's kind of popular, we, we were unable to do it, and we are looking f- around for it for months, and all of a sudden, just this week, uh, Craigslist pops up, this, this, uh, this little alert, and within hours, Brianna just nabs it, and she's like, I found this one, it's great, we saved up enough for it, this is the one, it's in Pasadena, can you go get it? So I'm like, yes, and I just got, you know, I just got off this trip, I've been driving for five hours, but no sweat, I'll go to Pasadena because a happy wife equals a happy life. And so <laughs> I hopped into, hopped into the car. We went down to Pasadena. I was a little bit grumpy, just rolled out on the wrong side of the bed. I was like, this is the last thing I want to do, and maybe it'll fall through. Nothing's been happening the way that we wanted, but whatever, I'll give it a shot. I'll throw, the, I'll throw out the old line and see if I catch anything. And Little by little, there were just these little things that would happen. It almost just felt like God... You know, I'm not the type of person to look at every single thing that happens in life and be like, that is the hand of the Lord, you know, or, or the opposite, like, that's a demon, you know, I have a headache, demon, oh, I have, I, my headache's gone, the Lord, you know. I'm not that type of person that over-spiritualizes everything, but this is just one of those events, one of those days where I was like, I, I just can't help but see that maybe God is just like, just his way of like, elbowing me in the ribs, like, I'm here, you know, and it started off small and insignificant. You know, I rolled up to the Honda dealership. I was meeting a, a, a couple there who was selling me their car. Thought, oh, I'll just meet them at the dealership. This older couple rolls up, and it's, uh, it's this tall man. Gets out of the car. Meet with him inside. And we just, you know, we're sitting waiting for, uh, for this car to, to go through some, uh, go through a little uh, tune-up and a lookover. And I'm sitting opposite this guy and it's you know it's just awkward maybe I'm just awkward I am awkward so I'm just sitting like twiddling my thumbs and I'm like hey how you doing <laughs> you know and he's all good you got any kids I'm all yeah and so we're talking about our kids and he sees my kids and he's like that's really interesting that you have uh, you know your, your daughter is brown skin with brown hair and your son is blonde with blue eyes and I'm all yeah you should see uh, the reactions I get when I'm walking with him down the street and he, he laughs and he says, Yeah, uh, we know a few things about mixed marriages. And he looks at his wife, who's Chinese, who's sitting across from them. And I'm like, that's interesting. We're in the same situation. But really, nothing that big of a deal, you know. And then as time goes on, I, I'm about to sign the title, and he, he asks me, Do you need a book, you know, to write on? I'm like, Yeah, I'll take a book. And he hands me this book. And I look at the binding, and it has this peculiar golden. Uh, uh, embossing on the edge that I've seen before. I turn and I look at the end and it says Philippians 2 and 3. And I'm like, that's, that's interesting that you're carrying a commentary in your book. And I look down and I see the, t- uh, the author of it and it says Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'm so shocked by it, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, that I just kind of blurted it out. I'm like, Martin Lloyd-Jones! <laughs> just in the middle of the Honda dealership. And he, he looks up and he's all, you know him? And I'm all, uh, yeah, you know, the late British doctor who turned into one of the greatest expositors in the New Testament that history has ever seen. I've heard a few, a few things, you know. And I'm all, yes, I know this, what, what, why do you have this? And his wife turns and has this big look on her face and she's like, are you a Christian? And I'm all, yeah, I'm a Christian! And I'm all, why do you have, this is such a weird book for a guy to be carrying around in his knapsack, why do you have it? And he's all, well, I'm a pastor, I pa- and I'm all, a pastor of what? And he's all, a church in Alhambra, it's a Presbyterian church there, you know. Uh, And he went through the the motions, and I was just baffled. Just English, Cantonese service, Mandarin service, over there in Alhambra, which I've never heard of before. Sounds like a barbecue joint or something. (laughs) And so, we meet, we're meeting in this area, and it's called the quiet room. The Honda dealership has a quiet room. And we are, at this point, we're actually very quiet. Because we're just looking at each other like, this is so strange that we would just run into each other. I'd actually tell my wife this story, and, I, and he, she asked me, where, uh, where do they pastor a church? And I said, Alhambra, Alhambra somewhere. And her eyes get big, and she looks at me, and she says, that's the place where I bought my Toyota that you just sold. It was from Alhambra. And at that point, I don't know what else she said, because I just died. I just died on the spot. <laughs> I just couldn't. It was just one of those things. Maybe all of it is coincidental, but it was one of those things that just made me feel like, wow. This was no accident. And we were sitting in the quiet room, quietly, looking at each other like this, just like, maybe we're supposed to run into each other. We exchanged numbers and said, you know, if you're ever in town, uh, let's, let's catch up. And we left with just this sense of like, whoa. Maybe this was just a litany of crazy circumstances and we just happened to run into people who are in the same exact phase of life. Or maybe God was just kind of bumping His elbow into our ribs saying, I'm involved even in the mundane and certainly in the suffering. This is exactly the type of feeling Naomi must have felt. You remember in chapter one and chapter two, as she is just mourning over her bitterness. God's hand is against me. Things start to look up. She sends Ruth to go gleaning in the fields and the text literally says, uh, it literally says she just by chance, chanced to wind up in the field of Boaz. We might put it uh, in our vernacular. We might say as luck would have it, she wound up in the very same uh, field of the person who is related to her that had power to help her. Okay? She just happened to come into the same field that actually mattered. And then as the text goes on, we see little glimpses of God's hand, it seems to be at work. Boaz, of all the days that he could have been there, he was there, and he sees Ruth. Of all of the other workers in the field, he just happens to see Ruth, who just happened to wind up in the right field, and just happened to uh, lock eyes on her and speak to her, and everything starts to come together. And then Ruth comes back with this big old 50-pound bag of barley on her shoulders because he gives it to her, and Naomi's jaw drops to the ground. says, who is this? Who did this? Who let you get all, uh, who has been so kind to you? She says, oh, it's this guy named Boaz, and then her jaw, if it's even possible, falls below the ground, because it's already on the ground. As she realizes, that's not just some guy, That's that's one of our relatives. It's one of our redeemers. And so there, we're launching into Ruth chapter three in that same type of feeling. There's no accidents in the economy of God. Maybe God is trying to get our attention. Maybe he's saying, hey, I know things look bleak, but I got your back. And I'm now working things for my glory and for your good. So I want to look at what it looks like for God to be good. The theme of this book is redemption. The apex of the book is uh, Ruth chapter 3. So I want to look at the redemption of God, God's redemption for people, for not only for Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth, but also for us. As it turns out, in three different ways, I want to look at the need for redemption. Why do we need it? Two, I want to look at a picture of redemption as it surfaces in Ruth chapter 3. And lastly, I want to look at the power for redemption. Why do we need it? What does it look like? And how do we access it? And here's, what, here's what I mean by the need for redemption. As Naomi gets this picture, yes, we're in a hopeless situation, but things are looking up. It's almost as if God is orchestrating everything around us to get us where we need to be. And so she immediately goes from a place of bitterness to a place of opportunity. She says, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to start working." I was bitter, I was weeping, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to engage what God is doing around me. She comes up with this idea. As soon as she hears about who Boaz is, she comes up with an idea. I wanna read it. Uh, we can read this together, the first five verses, a little short section. It says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative? There it is. With whose young women you were, This is Naomi's idea. Essentially, she says, wash your face, anoint your head, get dressed and go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night and wait for him and do a couple of other things, okay? We'll talk about those other things in a few seconds. But here's, here's essentially what she's saying. In other words, I want you to get done up. You've been in the fields, you've been working, you're sweaty, you look gross. I want you to get, you know, not gross and go meet this guy. Make yourself presentable. But the question that arises is why? Now, I'm not going to try to hide this from you. The verses to come are loaded with sexual innuendo. It's very risque. We don't really notice that, perhaps, because the the vernacular here isn't stuff that we use, but phrases that come up when, when when the author says... Uh, after pres- getting yourself presentable, go and make yourself known to the man un- uh, after he is finished and eating and drinking. So go in the middle of the night where he's sleeping at the threshing floor where they beat, uh, beat wheat and stuff. Uh, verse four, this phrase, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet. We'll talk about that in a second. Again, lie down and he will tell you what to do. All of this language has this very, uh, it has this, sexual connotation to it that is maybe uncomfortable for us when we read the Bible because, you know, the Bible is all about, you know, proper stuff. It doesn't say anything about sex, you know, all of that. Wrong. <laughs> but the question that arises, that's the language, but it, it, it causes us to have a little bit of a caution, right? That's, this is weird. <laughs> What's Ruth doing? And why is Naomi telling her to do what she's doing? There are some scholars and some commentators that would look at the language being used here and say this is a scandalous situation. It seems almost like Ruth, under the direction of Naomi, is going to make sexual advances towards Boaz in the middle of the night. Now, it cannot mean that. For a number of reasons, and I'll just skip I'll spare you all the details and just give you one. One is that Boaz, later in the chapter, actually refers to Ruth as a woman of noble character. She's a worthy woman. In other words, she's a woman of virtue. The same thing is is leveled at Boaz in the preceding chapters. These are virtuous people. There can be no possible way that they would do this. And there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that. Other commentators and scholars rightly conclude that this is just a literary device of the author. He's just trying to get your attention, okay? He's just trying to paint a scene where there is some tense uh, interactions. There is this sense in the back of their heads, like maybe I'm attracted to you and wow, this is crazy. There is a sense of secrecy. There is this emotional tension, There is all of that stuff, but it never goes where we assume that it's gonna go. So that brings up the last question. Why would Naomi tell her, her daughter-in-law, to get all done up, to go to this place in secrecy if she's not gonna end up seducing Boaz? Now those three words that Naomi, to answer that question you're all asking, is those three words when she tells her daughter-in-law, wash, anoint, and get dressed. This particular cocktail of phrases only shows up in one other area in the Old Testament. It comes in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. Listen to this. It comes with King David. This is right after King David's firstborn son dies, right? dies because he got judged by God. David just uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and in order to get away with that, actually committed the murder, or commissioned the murder of Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. So, murder and adultery. Now he's being judged in his sin by God. He loses his firstborn, and he's in a period of mourning. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Then David arose from the earth, listen, and washed, and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. Washed, anointed, got dressed, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. In other words, in the ancient uh, Near East, this was the normal way of ending a period of mourning, okay? This was signaling the end to a period of mourning. David was mourning, and now he's going back to life as usual. Ruth does the same thing. Actually, Ruth is told to do the same thing. Why? Why? Ruth was in a period of mourning. She had just lost her husband. And now Naomi is concocting a plan. She sees Boaz. He's good looking. He's rich. He's a family redeemer. And she says to uh, Ruth, listen, wipe your tears up, put on some perfume, comb your hair, get dressed, and go to this guy's house. And when she does that, she is signaling to Boaz that she is beyond that period of mourning and ready to go about life as usual, it would appear. When Naomi then tells her the next thing to do, uncover his feet, that's, that's weird, right? If <laughs> someone were to sit on your bedside and uncover your feet in the middle of the night, you'd be like, get out of here, you <laughs> creeper. Again, some people would say they're sexual connotations, but I don't think so. One commentator says it was likely... That The cold air, if you were to do that, and there's a reason why you would do this, the cold air upon Boaz's feet would wake him up when he was asleep. Now, why wouldn't she just yell at the top of her lungs? Well, everything is done in secrecy. If someone were to notice Ruth at the threshing floor alone with Boaz in the middle of the night, this could end very scandalously for both of them. She had to do this in secret. She couldn't speak up. She couldn't touch him. She couldn't do anything that would give anything away. She couldn't do anything that would uh, uh, steal from her integrity and her character. And so she uncovers his feet in the middle of the night. She waits till everyone is asleep so no one sees her. Uncovers his feet. Perhaps the cold air wakes him up from the sleep. And she's doing all of this, washing her hair, anointing her face, getting dressed, uh, making it clear that there's an end to her mourning, uh, waking him up in the middle of the night in a safe environment, as safe as could possibly be. She's, in other words, doing everything she can to make herself seem more alluring and to break down his resistance. Now, why would she be so aggressive? Or why would Naomi cause her to be so aggressive? I think it's locked up in a single line. That Naomi says to Ruth, isn't he your family redeemer? All of a sudden, the bitterness in Naomi moves to an aggressive act of trust and faith. We got to get this guy. Our hope is locked up in this person. So Ruth accepts the challenge. And in Ruth, you see this, this combination of both helplessness and hope. Helplessness and hope collide and push her to do the unthinkable. She could lose anything if anything goes wrong. If Boaz sees this in the, in the wrong light, if someone sees her at the threshing floor alone with this guy, if anything goes wrong, right, if anything goes outside of the scope of their plan, she has lost everything. But she is driven by that. She's driven by a sense of hopelessness. The first question why do we need redemption? Well, the people who find themselves at the bottom of the barrel of life are the ones that often seem to sense that they also need help the most. It's usually not when you're affluent and successful, when you're on top of life and you're not going through suffering, that you end up crying out for help. It's usually when you're at the bottom of life's barrel it's usually when you have this utter sense of hopelessness that you are driven to desperate acts of faith and risk. And we see that in Ruth, we see that in Naomi. What we see in the next few verses is a picture of what redemption is. Now they're hungering for it, they have a need for it, but what does it look like? We see, we don't get a definition of redemption in the book of Ruth, we just get pictures. We get examples. I wanna give you one of those examples right now in verse six through 13 says, so Ruth went down. So Naomi has an idea. She hatches an idea. Ruth is about to do it. She goes down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commended her. And when Boaz had eaten and drank and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. <laughs> Go figure. He turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow countrymen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Ruth takes Naomi's advice, goes to the scene, follows it perfectly. Boaz is shocked, as we would expect, right? I want you to picture like, the threshing floor is where Boaz is working. Imagine today you're a mechanic, you start working at the garage downtown, you fall asleep from a late night of work, you're sleeping, I don't know, on the ground or on a cot, and you wake up in the middle of the night because your feet are cold, and there's a silhouette of a woman all done up sitting at your cot, and she's just sitting there staring at you. And you're like, oh, Boaz says what we might all say if we were in the same situation. Who are you? (laughs) Now, at this point, Naomi didn't give her anything else to say. Naomi's advice was, go here, do these three things, and just wait for his reaction. Ruth actually goes beyond the script. She actually takes things into her own hands, and her hopelessness seems to drive her sense of risk. She actually goes on to say, my name is Ruth. I'm your servant. That's interesting, Because the first time she introduces herself, she says, I'm a foreigner. This time she says, I'm your servant. Her identity seems to be being bolstered. She goes on to say, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I want to talk about these two phrases because the whole chapter swings on these two phrases. When she says spread your wings in verse 9, she's implying, uh, uh, I'll just take you there, just keep your thumb here, but look at chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz sees her the first time, and sees and speaks of all the kindness that Ruth has shown towards her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and his response is, he prays for her and says in verse 12, "'The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge.'" Boaz prays, because of all you have done for your mother-in-law, I pray that you would find refuge under the wings of your father. How interesting that Ruth comes around, shocks him in the middle of the night and says, it seems like you are the answer to your prayer. You are the instrument by which God is going to show me kindness. I want your wings, bro. Wings in the Old Testament can often refer to the corners of a garment, right? It's the tassels, it's the edge, the hem of the garment. And in that day, there was a a symbolic tradition of marriage in which you would cover, symbolically cover uh, your future spouse with the hem of your garment. That was a sign in those times, and even in a lot of different countries today, of, uh, uh, of marrying that person. It was calling them into marriage. You know what Ruth is saying here? As if it couldn't get more weird. She's not just sitting on his bedside in the middle of the night and shocking him in the middle of the night, but when he wakes up and asks, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, marry me. <laughs> That's literally what she's saying. She's saying, I am Ruth, I'm your servant, and she's asking him to marry, uh, 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 to marry her. Now, this isn't, this isn't just some flippant, romantic come on in the middle of the night she's not just moved by passion and emotion saying wow that guy's so attractive marry me but rather there's something a lot deeper going on here and she says that in the next line marry me or spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer This is far beyond just romantic or physical attraction or even emotional attachment. There's something far deeper going on. You are a redeemer. There's a family connection that is much bigger than just my story involved. When she says redeemer, and when Naomi says redeemer, and when Boaz later in chapter 4 refers to a redeemer, they're using a Hebrew word called goel, goel. In your translations, it might, come across, it might be translated redeemer. It might be called a family redeemer. Some of your translations might say a kinsman redeemer. It is that person in your clan of families. Remember, in the past couple weeks, we've been talking about family in the Old Testament. And you had a biological family, which was really good and tight. But that family belonged to a grouping of families called a clan, and that clan belonged to a a tribe, like the tribe of uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Dan, so on and so forth, the 12 tribes. But that clan, that one in the middle, that grouping of all of these families was the most close-knit group of community you can possibly find in ancient Israel. So close was it. That in Levitical law, in Leviticus, in places in Deuteronomy, there were uh, laws that were, uh, that were written that were told that there were certain people who were called redeemers, family redeemers, who had the obligation to look after people, not just in their biological family, but in other families. Generally, it took place, there um, uh, Some of the examples would be if you were in debt or lost a piece of land to your family, or if you didn't have a family, if you were perhaps widowed and you you didn't have any children. And remember, family was everything back then. A kinsman redeemer had the obligation, or perhaps the opportunity, to step into that family situation and redeem them out of despair. It denoted this rightful redemption. It denoted this rightful getting back of a person or an object or a thing or a status that had once belonged to you but had been lost. A kinsman redeemer could step in and say, I am buying that back. Ruth, essentially, looking at that, Is essentially asking Boaz, hey, you are our kinsman redeemer. You have the opportunity not just to buy me back, but Naomi too, and make something of our family, which was nothing. Please bring me under the covering of your marriage because you are the one God has placed in my life for a redemptive purpose. Now, this wasn't a small thing for Boaz. Here's what it would have entailed. Boaz would have had to buy their land. Remember, they moved out of Bethlehem to Moab. They sold their land. No land. This was a bad thing. He, could have, he would have had to buy their land. That would have put him in debt for how much that land cost. But he wouldn't just be able to stop there. Remember, he would have had to because they didn't have any male children or husbands. He would have had to marry into the family and raise kids, This is called a leveret marriage. We see it if you want to read more about it. Deuteronomy 25, verse five through 10. Leviticus 25, verse 48 through 49. You could marry into a family. What this meant was you would would provide kids to that family, but they wouldn't be yours. You would be raising kids with the deceased man's name for his honor. That meant you wouldn't have no kids of your own. And in a culture where kids were everything, This was a a huge sacrifice, but it didn't stop there. Remember, Naomi was too old to have kids. So, in order for this to work, he would have had to marry Ruth, a Moabitess. There was a lot going on that Boaz was facing. Things that he was risking, things that he was sacrificing. And how does he respond? He could have rejected her claim. He could have actually been a, a, a jerk about it and called her a harlot or an adulteress and chased her out of town, expelled, uh, ex- expelled her back to Moab, but he responds positively saying, uh, oh, you can just read it in verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men whether poor or rich. In other words, he goes on to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do this. You have a closer relative over here. I'm gonna talk to him, but if he doesn't do it, I will redeem you. I will marry you. I will take care of your family. What is redemption? We get a little picture of it. It's salvation for people who cannot save themselves. You start in a place of utter, desperate hopelessness, but out of that hopelessness, you see that you really and deeply and truly need help. Redemption is help for people who cannot help themselves. Lastly, we see the power for redemption. How do we get it? And say you're in a place where you're suffering, suffering tremendously. You're hopeless, you're despairing, you're destitute. You see that you need to be redeemed, that you need to be pulled out of the miry clay. The last question arises, how do I get it? I'm in, how do I get it? Let's read the last four verses, starting in verse 14. So she, Ruth, lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the the threshing floor. In other words, uh, gotta keep this a secret so we don't blow this opportunity. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are uh, wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley, focuses directly on Boaz's initiative towards Ruth and Naomi. Boaz's commitment was Ruth's assurance, not the other way around. Yeah, Ruth was hopeless. Yeah, she stepped out in faith, but at the end of the day, it was all in Boaz's hands. Whether she lived or died, and he gives her a gift, a down payment, if you want to call it that, to make sure that she's filled, satisfied, and not empty-handed. And notice this in the text, in, in Ruth's response, he actually does it for Naomi's benefit. Why does he do that? He doesn't just give food to Ruth like he did in, the, in chapter 2, but he actually does it and specified this is For your mother-in-law, this is for your mother-in-law, and her response to that, her reaction is, I believe that he's going to finish out his commitment, let's wait here, he will not rest until the matter is settled today. In other words, Boaz isn't just taking Ruth's hand in marriage, he's actually giving a hint, if you will, a clue, that I am going to do my job as a kinsman redeemer. So much so, can you count on this, that I want you to leave a little kernel of this truth in your mother-in-law's ear. That just, uh, one one scholar puts it this way, the seed to fill the stomach, the wheat, the barley that I've been giving to you, it was also a promise of the seed to fill the womb. I'm not just going to fill your stomachs, I am going to take care of your childlessness. I will be the person that God has called me to be, to step into your despair, not just your physical hunger, but into your despair, into your spiritual hunger, into your child uh, childlessness, into your barrenness, into your poverty. I will take care of everything. I will take care of your land. I will take care of your family. I will take care of your food. I will be the kinsman redeemer. And so Naomi interprets this as his commitment, saying, hey, he's gonna pull this off. Let's just wait And rely on him. And so we see, at the end of the story, Ruth and Naomi in an impossible situation. They can't help themselves, but they find themselves at the mercy of another person, a redeemer, who is able to redeem them out of their despair and to assure them of his commitment. He gives them food as a sign of good faith. As we've been seeing through the book of Ruth, All of this is simply a picture. Jesus would later describe the Old Testament as the prophets and the writings as pointing ultimately towards him. Boaz is a redeemer husband who is there to give us a tangible picture of God's love for you and I. In fact, we see that later in Isaiah 54 verse five. Your maker is your husband. God is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Everything you read in Ruth chapter 1 and 2 and 3 is a picture of God's love being shown towards his people abroad. What gets really interesting is when we see that love being made more fully manifest, not just in some arbitrary laws or some covenant love or in a story here and there, but manifest in a single person to come later. Hebrews chapter one, verse one tells us, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Ruth. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What the testimony of the story of God from Genesis to Revelation tells us is that Jesus himself is the word of God. He is the strategy of God. He is the manifestation of all that is good in God. He is the destination of the mission of God. And he is the object of the Father's plan from beginning to end, including God's redemption. Everything that we see in this little family in the middle of nowhere, in Moab, we see broadening to fulfillment in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter chapter one tells us we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our forefathers. How? Not with perishable things, not with money, not with silver, not with gold, not with success, not with career, not with relationships, not even with marriage, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot we see that Jesus is actually a better picture of Boaz than Boaz. He's not just a picture of Boaz either. We see glimpses of Ruth in Jesus Christ, albeit much better. One writer, Daniel Block, writing about Ruth's incredible characteristic display of trust and risk, he put it this way. He said, Ruth's speech to Boaz might be short, but it's extraordinary what she's asking He says, Naomi has ended her instructions for her daughter-in-law by telling her to do whatever Boaz would say she should do. But Ruth turns around and lectures Boaz on his obligations to her. She steps out in boldness and faith and says, you're our redeemer, so get to redeeming. Right? The reader is forced to stand back in awe, wondering what has possessed Ruth. Here is a servant demanding that the boss carry her, a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. From a natural perspective, the scheme was doomed from the very start as a hopeless gamble, and the responsibility Naomi places on Ruth was quite unreasonable, but it worked, In other words, this is a silly situation. Ruth is the poorest of the poor. She's at the bottom of the barrel. She has no clout, no success, no hope for survival, no power, no influence, no friends. There is no way she should be coming out on top, but that is how the economy of the uh, the kingdom of God works. Isn't Jesus the one who said on the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of God would come to the poor in spirit? They are the ones who are truly blessed. It's the poor in spirit, it's the merciful, it's the broken, it's the hungry that will see the Lord. God always comes to the desperate of the desperate. It's the ones that are hungry for him that he is so pleased and blessed to show himself mighty on their behalf. But make no mistake, Ruth is going out on a limb. She's suffering to step out in faith. We see that in Jesus too. Just as Ruth went outside of the city, left her native country, uh, native country of Moab to step out in faith to pursue God, so in Hebrews chapter 13, we see that Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. He left his home from above, stepped into a foreign land, stepped into the mission of God to save a people after his own namesake. In all of this wonderful, beautiful, thrilling book, we must remember that no one in here is the hero except the hand of an invisible God. That the gospel is not be more like Boaz, who has integrity and character and does the right thing, nor is it be more like Ruth, who steps out in faith and risks everything, leaves her country to, uh, to be there for Naomi the gospel in Matthew the gospel in Hebrews the gospel in Ruth is look to Jesus Christ the one who is a better Boaz a better Ruth a better Moses a better temple a better everything the gospel is not be better than you were it's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps the gospel is actually you're hopeless and you need a redeemer the gospel, as Frederick Buchner once put it, is a story that gets bad before it actually gets good. In order for the gospel to really hit you in the feels, you have to recognize, wow, I desperately need help. Paul would later say this about the beauty of our calling by God in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. For those of you that are saying, I'll make my life make sense, I will gain a sense of security and well being and significance if I just do better at my life, at my career, at my family, at my job, at my recreation, at my uh, personal development. The Bible says, hey, that's what the world looks to, but God looks at something else. In fact, look at the ones of you who are chosen. Chosen by God. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. He became for us the righteousness that we did not have. He caused in us the sanctification that we could not create for ourselves. And he was our redemption that which we could not reach being ourselves at the bottom of the barrel so that as it is written let no one who boasts uh, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord God has this tremendous habit of making beautiful things out of lowly things so that at the end of the day they will turn around and give him glory and praise he does that with Ruth he does that with Naomi he does that with Chris Lazo he does that with you Where does redemption come from? It comes from God's loving action towards people who need him. And it shows up in Jesus Christ. Are you moved by this story? Are you moved by it? Some of you might say, well, yeah, I am. I believe all of the stuff that you just said. And I moved, just like Ruth and just like Boaz. But my fear is this morning that you, that for some of you, maybe even many of you, you say that you're moved by the power of the gospel. But you're not. It's just lip service. Easy to formulate the words, but your heart is not affected. Why? Both Boaz and Ruth, you have to understand this about both of them. Both Boaz and Ruth found something worth losing everything in order to attain. Both of them risk losing everything in order to find something else that was better. For Ruth, she left Moab. Moab. She left a chance at another, uh, another chance. She left a chance at another husband. She left a chance of a family. And so many of us think that if we follow Christ, our life is gonna get better. Ruth left a life that was gonna get better for a life that was about to get worse to follow the God of the Israelites. It was the exact opposite of what you would expect of an immigrant story. No immigrant ever goes to another country to get a worse life. We switch countries to get a better life. Ruth switches countries for a worse life. Why? Driven by what she saw in Naomi's God. What about Boaz? Boaz risked losing everything. He went into debt for the land. He married into a family that, had, that could give nothing back to him. In fact, he would lose his namesake in order to raise kids for a family. There was nothing in it for him. In fact, only loss. Both of these people found something worth losing everything for. You know that you are giving Christ lip service if you're following him because you think that it's going to make your life easier. Perhaps your life is already easy. Or perhaps you think that following him will give you the life that you've always wanted. And there's no sense of cost. Why does there need to be? Your life is already good. And so for you, you can just simply attach Christ to your life as a a religious badge. You'll know how much you love him when the times of suffering come. That's the true test, and that's why we have the book of Ruth. But perhaps right now there's no sense of cost. Maybe because he's really not that valuable to you. And you, brothers and sisters, need to be shocked by the gospel of grace. You need to see what we see in this outline, that there is a sense of hopelessness to you. Even if you're rich and wealthy in so many different things, even if everything is going your way, you need to be able to see that you are hopeless and messed up in your sin apart from God. But then you also need to see that redemption is possible to you, and it only comes in Christ Jesus. Ruth is an ancient story of that, a more modern story, and I think one of the best there is as far as redemption goes, and I'll end on this, is uh, the epic novel uh, Le Miserable. I don't mean the, the sing-along that came along in the theaters, but the book. For those of you that maybe never read the book or watched the, the movie, um, it's a, simply a story about A, a criminal. Jean Valjean, who actually doesn't start as a criminal. He's actually unjustly in prison for 19 years for something that he doesn't do. But in prison for 19 years, he becomes a criminal. He's locked away unjustly. It, it turns him into a criminal. He's seething with hate. He's seething with bitterness. In prison, he becomes victimized, bitter and self-righteousness. And so he goes into prison as a good, upstanding man, but he leaves prison as a hardened criminal. Over time... Uh, a bishop by the name of Muriel takes in Jean Valjean, takes him into his house and shows chesed kindness towards him. Loves on him even though he has nothing to give in return. Loves on him even though he did nothing to deserve it. In the face of that, when the the good bishop is sleeping, the story goes, Jean Valjean actually steals into the kitchen and takes all of the silverware and bursts off into the night returns his kindness with theft, runs off with a silverware, and he actually gets caught by a bunch of gendarmes who rough him up, bring him back to the bishop's house and say, we caught this guy. He took your silverware. We caught him red-handed. Give us the word, press charges, and we'll take him away forever. To the shock of the gendarmes and to Jean Valjean, the bishop looks at the gendarmes and says, actually, he didn't steal those. I I gave them to him. In fact, Jean Valjean, you actually forgot the candlesticks. You were supposed to take those too. He goes over, takes the candlesticks, puts them into Jean Valjean's arm, whose jaw by this point has fallen to the ground. The gendarmes say, well, our mistake, we're so sorry. We're certain that he stole all of these things. The bishop replies, no, those were a gift. In fact, I'm glad you came back, Jean Valjean, because I had more to give you. When the gendarmes leave, he, he, says, he, he grabs Jean Valjean in his hands, looks into his eyes, and this is the apex of the whole story. This is why the book is always better than the movie. He looks at Jean Valjean and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy back from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And it's at this point that Jean Valjean breaks. Why? Because in the face of everything that he's ever done wrong, someone shows kindness towards him anyway. That is the picture of redemption. And it renders him a new man. It is a self-righteousness that he built up in prison, now colliding with the grace of the bishop. That's the collision you have to have this morning. Do you feel it? Are you moved by it? This is the gospel of grace and the gospel of redemption. Like Ruth, Jesus suffers outside the gate on the cross so that he, like Boaz, can give us the wealth and riches of God's love and grace that we never deserved. If that doesn't move you this this morning, I would get on my face today and cry out to the Holy Spirit, show me your love for me. Show me your redemption. I want it. I just don't know what to do about it. Open my eyes. Show me my need for you and step into my heart. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you more. And he'll do it. Heavenly Father, we just ask that as we go into a time of singing and worship through music, that you would step into this place and you would reveal in the name of Jesus that gracious act of redemption that you put on display through Jesus Christ. That we were like Ruth, the poorest of the poor, with nothing to offer. We were like Jean Valjean, criminals, sinners the like. And yet you, Leave your country of origin. You come into our mess. You display your love. You carry us to your table. You feed us with the feast of your kingdom. You seat us in heavenly places. You shower us with your love. And even today, We do things constantly to throw that in your face. We forget about your love. We continue to sin. We are faithless, and yet, as the the author of Hebrews says, you remain faithful. You, Lord, are our kinsman redeemer. How have we fooled ourselves reading books like this saying, I'm like Boaz, and I'm like Ruth, and I'm like Paul, and I'm like this guy, and I'm like King David? We are not like them except in their flaws. we are the destitute, we are the poor, we are the impoverished, we are the sinner, we are the leper, we are the tax collector, we are the prostitutes, and you are the better Boaz, you are the better Ruth, you are the better Moses, you are the better temple, you are the better priest, you are the better King David, you are the one that came to us when we were stuck in the quicksand of our own sin to reach out and to redeem us for your good name. So I pray that in light of that deep revelation, God, you would meet us here today. You would shower us with your love and we, maybe even for the first time, would be rocked by that. Come, Lord Jesus. Reveal yourself as we sing. Christ's name.